from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On today's show, we hear about new development projects recently completed or moving forward in the New Orleans metro area. Plus, we hear about an upcoming poetry workshop at the New Orleans Museum of Art, where poets can explore the intersection between visual and language arts. But first, Governor John Bell Edwards is approaching his final days in office, and the Democrat will soon be succeeded by far-right former Attorney General Jeff Landry. Here to help us break down Edwards' final days and the political transition is Stephanie Grace, editorial director and columnist for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate. Steph, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Same to you. John Bell Edwards gave his final speech in his hometown of Amy last night. What did he talk about? Well, it was a real homecoming to the place where he and his wife, Donna, met his school children. They didn't actually agree on what grade, but, you know, six to eight, somewhere in there, and where they raised their family. And it had that feel. There was a big spotlight on Donna Edwards' role as First Lady, in fact. Uh, she worked hard on fighting human trafficking and also promoting arts education. She's, of course, a music teacher, former music teacher. And, you know, talked about how that's great for learning and also as therapy for kids who are struggling, which has really been a big theme of this administration. Mm -hmm. As for the governor, he really zoned in on the, you know, what's a remarkable financial turnaround in the state on his watch. He inherited a $2 billion shortfall, and he recalled that he decided to run because he was really angry at the disinvestment in things like higher education. Um, he actually had some more directly harsh words for Bobby Jindal, his predecessor, than I think we've heard before. He's a little a little bit unplugged these days. And he's leaving a big surplus. You know, there's money in rainy day funds, and there are some investments that he hopes will be foundational mm -hmm. on things like early childhood education. And I should add that hanging over the evening was some personal news for the family. Um, his daughter had just gone to the hospital and was getting ready to deliver the family's first grandchild. So that, that kind of added to the family feel of the night. He didn't seem distracted about it at all. Uh, we, no. And we got some other news about uh, John Bell Edwards this morning, yes? We did. We found out that once he leaves office on Monday, he'll be joining the law firm Fishman Haygood, where he'll be focusing on another area that he really promoted in office, the kind of so-called greening of the state's energy economy. This is a firm that's been involved in things like carbon capture, which Edwards has really promoted, and capping old oil wells, things like that. He may do some litigating, they're saying, which would be interesting, and I'm, I imagine he's pretty good in the courtroom. And, and I guess we should note that this does not necessarily mean this is the end of his political career. He has definitely left the door open for returning to some sort of public role in the future. But for now, you know, this and playing with a new grandbaby, I think, are what is on what is on his agenda. Governor-elect Jeff Landry takes office Monday. How are the first days of his administration shaping up? Well, you know, there's kind of a tradition of new governors calling special legislative sessions. It helps them take advantage of whatever honeymoon they may have coming off a winning campaign and also kind of, you know, projects the image of, of tackling the state's big problems with gusto. In this case, we have one special session coming that's basically been ordered by the court, so that's a little unusual. So that's first up, and it's the redistricting session that is intended to finally create another uh, second majority Black congressional district in the state, which is something the courts have mandated, mm -hmm. and the state has kind of fought up until now. Of course, this means that one of the state's five Republican House members will lose a safe seat, and that's that's a big part of the drama coming up. And after that, he's intending to call lawmakers into a session to talk about crime, which was, of course, a centerpiece of his campaign. 
we don't know exactly what he'll propose yet, um, but he's been a strong opponent of the bipartisan criminal justice reforms that passed under Edwards, which actually Edwards noted on Wednesday had at least temporarily ended the state's reign as the nation's incarceration capital. Mm -hmm. So I think he's urging them to kind of keep things as they are. I don't know whether that will happen. And, you know, a lot of people are also waiting to see how Landry will deploy state police in New Orleans, but that's not something that has to go through the legislature. You know, what seems to have been pushed back on the calendar a little is legislation on insurance, which will likely come back, come later in the spring. Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for The Times, Picayune, The Advocate. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Right as we stepped into the new year, Greater New Orleans Inc. shared a bit of good news as they highlighted the $3.5 billion in projects that have been completed or are moving toward completion in 2024. Joining us to talk a bit about it is the president and CEO of GNO Inc., Michael Hecht. Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Happy New Year. Same to you, sir. This is good news for the metropolitan area. Investors and developers are interested in New Orleans. What does this say to you? Well, the basic definition that we use of economic development is that it's about creating the conditions where companies want to risk their capital and people want to raise their families. And so when I look at the, the three, three and a half billion dollars that's currently under investment in downtown New Orleans, I kind of take that as an indication that that it's working, that we're getting economic development, that people are choosing to invest their dollars in the city and, and in the region. As I looked at the graphic of the 39 development projects you all put out, I remember a few years back, there was this huge resistance to expanding the number of hotel rooms in the city. But as I look at the graphic, there are quite a few hotels being created and others expanded. What's changed? One, I think that the the hospitality market has come to realize that new rooms coming online can be stimulative, um, can create agglomeration, um, and sometimes can even uh, create more opportunity. And then two, I think that coming out of COVID, uh, everything that COVID robbed from us, intimacy, culture, making questionable life decisions, New Orleans offers in bounty. And so the tourism industry has come roaring back. Probably the, the best example that I've seen of this is the Four Seasons. Four Seasons came in at a price point, point. I think they've come down somewhat, but at a price point that was above everything else in the market. And when I talked to the other hoteliers, they would say, that's fine. That's just going to give us headroom to increase our rev par. I think that it's attracting a different level of tourists with uh, things like Viking River Cruises, uh, the British Airways direct flight, the other international direct flights. The Harris that's coming online is going to be a high-end product. And it's, I don't know if you saw it, Bob, but there was an article that came out in Forbes a couple of days ago that had New Orleans listed as the most expensive place in the country in terms of hotel rooms to enjoy New Year's Eve. And that text was going around with the number of people in the hospitality industry, and they were all actually generally pleased about it because they saw it as an indication of the quality of, of the experience here. With what we're seeing with um, the Esplanade and Kenner, Clearview Mall in Metairie, do you see that as the direction for many of the remaining shopping malls moving towards that multi-purpose district medical residential smattering of business thrown in? I think with exception of some um, of the most successful centers like Lakeside, which is one of the most successful in the country because of its location and because of what a good job the files do with continually updating it, 
You're seeing shopping centers around the country thinking about repurposing themselves in this way. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly interested in the Clearview development because um, it's so compelling. You take a great location, you put a great hospital there, um, mixed income housing, mixed use development, and it suddenly is is able to be activated 24-7 in a way that it wasn't even when it was a successful shopping center, shopping mm -hmm. wall. I, I'm actually very encouraged by these redevelopments. And if it these do work, they're not only going to reactivate these distressed pieces of pieces of real estate, but they're also going to help lower the cost of housing because they're just going to bring more units on the market. Michael, from the outside, Old Charity Hospital always looked at best bedraggled. Uh, mm. After Katrina, the inside was horrendous. Do you think $500 million is going uh, to be enough for Tulane to transform that place into apartments and research facilities? So I'm actually looking out my window at Charity right now. Once they have power washed the outside, it's going to be one of the most beautiful and largest uh, adaptive reuse projects in the country. It's a gorgeous you know, 1930s mm -hmm. building. I'm not an architect nor a developer, but 500 million sounds pretty efficient for a space of that size. Uh -huh. So we'll see. But I, I do know from talking to President Fitz at Tulane that the commitment to charity and to really investing in downtown New Orleans from Tulane is absolute. So I think the combination of Tulane and LSU and Domain and other partners are going to get this done. We're speaking with President and CEO of GNO Inc., Michael Hecht, about the multi-billion dollar infusion of new developments in the metro area since 2019. I realize I may be mixing apples and oranges here, but we've just seen the sale of the old Freeport MacMoran, nay, DXC building to developers, developers who are no strangers to the New Orleans Business District. Uh, what worked? What didn't work, in your opinion, with DXC, who's now trying to lease four of the six floors they control? Well, DXC got buffeted by uh, by two major events. You know, being honest, what happened there? Of course, this is the one that was announced with great fanfare, two thousand jobs um, around twenty seventeen. One thing I want to say is that DXC has been a success. They are are at about three hundred people in Louisiana, but obviously that's a fraction of what was originally intended. Two things happened. Uh, one was that about three months after we announced the transaction. There was a CEO switch at DXC. Uh, the stock price was was not doing well. They fired the previous CEO, brought in a new one. And as every new CEO is wont to do, he questioned the last CEO's plans and said, we're going to do it differently. So there was change at the top. Now, ultimately, they did decide to recommit to New Orleans. So the new CEO did decide to do that. That was good news. The second thing was just COVID. Like most tech uh, companies around the country and around the world, most of their employees have just not come back to their buildings. This is happening everywhere. So the folks who are working for DXC are just working uh, from home. They're working remotely. Mm -hmm. uh, New Orleans downtown, actually, I think, Bob, we're doing better than most downtowns. I think we're at about 80% occupancy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some like Midtown Manhattan that are, I think, think still below 50%. The strong interest in bricks and mortar offices, do you think businesses are going to be able to incentivize people to come back in person? You know, I think that there's going to be a, a slow but inevitable return to the office, just maybe with more flexibility built in than before. Maybe the Friday work from home will become standard. So I think you're going to see some changes overall. But on the other hand, 
I've not met a single friend or CEO who says that you get the same level of creativity and cultural consistency and collaboration from Zoom meetings that you do doing it in person. Mm-hmm. Most are going to have to come back in person. What are some of the positives that we can take with us from 2023 moving into 2024? You know, I was just talking to staff about this because we have our annual meeting coming up and we're talking about the lessons that we learned. You know, 2022 was a tough year. That was the end of COVID. It was a, a horrible year for us in terms of violence. 2023, I think, was the beginning of the comeback. There was an article that came out today. We were down about 25% in homicides. Other violence has abated. Recruitment has improved for NOPD. Uh, our business development pipeline, not just in New Orleans, but throughout the region, is doing very well. Lots of exciting clean energy projects. And I just am getting this, this, this greater sense of optimism on the street. I don't know if you're feeling it, Bob, but I kind of uh, feel a sense of relief a sense that we've gotten through the worst of it together and that now we are kind of marching marching forward. Uh, even the fact that the national economy is having a, a soft landing, it seems like, and not a recession is giving people a sense of, of relief. So despite all the sourness about national politics and the seeming regular tragedies that are happening internationally, I think locally, including with the new gubernatorial administration, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of quiet optimism on the ground now. Michael Heck, President and CEO of GNO, Inc., thank you for your time and for being here. Always, Bob. Really appreciate it. And best wishes to you for uh, a prosperous 2024. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Next Wednesday, January 10th, the New Orleans Museum of Art will begin a three-week series of poetry workshops. The series aims to give poets of all ages and levels of experience a chance to write while surrounded by artwork, as well as to explore the intersection between visual and language arts. Daniel Fitzpatrick is an author, poet, translator, and member of NOMA's Creative Assembly cohort who's hosting this workshop, and he joins us now for more. Danny, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about how this idea came to be how, and, and what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Sure. So workshops have been really important to me as a poet for a long time. The first sort of important workshop that I attended was just after the birth of my first child, Therese. Peter Cooley, Louisiana Poet Laureate, Professor at Tulane, uh, many, many other accolades, hosted a workshop uh, at a library down in the Bywater and that was a really powerful turning point for me as a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a moment when I was fueled by sort of lack of sleep and a lot of other uh, <laughs> sort of new energies. Um, several years later in 2020, just before the COVID pandemic started, um, I attended a workshop in Key West with Gregory Pardlow, um, whose work Digest won the Pulitzer Prize in poetry in 2015. Mm-hmm. And those two workshops kind of form these these really critical moments in my poetic life. So when I heard that I was going to get to be a part of the Creative Assembly, sort of the first place that my mind went to uh, was the workshop um, as a place where all sorts of people can be involved in a poetic conversation, um, a space where every voice has the opportunity to be heard, um, and a place where there's a, a kind of equality in the face of poetry 
And so what do you hope that those who attend this workshop will, will take away from it? So in the first place, just some time to feel good about writing poetry. Mm-hmm. What I think is great about a workshop is that it just give, just carves out some time where I can say I'm going to wholeheartedly give myself to poetry. Um, in the second place, I hope it can give anyone who joins us a few new ideas for maybe how to approach poetry. Um, I don't pretend to be, again, any sort of master or expert, um, but I've been given a lot of uh, advice by much better poets than I am, and this advice has been really helpful to me. Uh, And then finally, just the opportunity to be surrounded by beautiful artwork Mm -hmm. um, and to be in the presence of other people who who are likewise committed in some way to the pursuit of poetry. Let's talk a little bit more about that. How do you think being surrounded by all of this visual art can help elevate the imaginations of poets and perhaps inspire their writings? One of my very favorite poems is called Wishing Well. Uh, It's by Gregory Partlow. The sort of scenario of the poem plays out on the steps of the Met in New York Mm -hmm. as this kind of theater for encounter with another human being. Um, There's a sense, number one, in which art tends to offer a place where people can congregate and have the sort of comforting sense of being able to look together at something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, before sort of turning to each other and then having taken the further step of uh, encountering each other uh, sort of directly, not through the mediation of the, the artwork at first. Um, there's also a way in which visual art, I think, tells us a lot about how to tell a story. So there's a way in which you can look at a painting or a sculpture and see all of it all at once. You have the sort of immediate intuition of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But then as you spend time before it, you realize the way in which the artist is guiding your eye along, kind of on a journey through the painting uh, or on a journey around the sculpture or whatever it might be. And that sense of the way that seeing a painting or a sculpture or other piece of visual art in time unfolds experientially, I think could be really powerful for writers to get a sense of What do I need to do uh, to give my reader the time to encounter whatever I am presenting uh, to to his or her mind's eye? Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Danny Fitzpatrick, author, poet, and member of NOMA's Creative Assembly cohort, hosting a three-week series of poetry workshops at the museum to encourage writers of all ages. Would you walk us through the structure of the workshop? What does the week-to-week plan look like? Sure. So it's divided into three weeks, as you say. Um, they can be taken uh, all together. You know, folks are welcome to, to join me for, for all three sessions, or if they want to just pick, pick one or two of those that work for them, that's perfectly fine. Um, week one will kind of take as its theme the idea of poetry as a, a listening art. Um, so Robert Frost, when he was writing poetry, rather than working at a desk, he would, he would lean back in a rocking chair uh, and write there. I've always taken that as kind of a, a very fine image for what poetry tends to be as a kind of leaning back sort of art. Um, So the first week is going to kind of center on that, um, how we can listen to all sorts of different forces, whether it's nature, spiritual forces, uh, our own bodies, our memories, all these sorts of things that can give us a point of sort of ingress into the sort of uh, poetic impulse. 
Uh, week two is going to focus on a, a really critical idea that language can focus, and it always does both of these things, but language can very easily focus on um, either giving us an image that's beyond the words themselves or pointing us to the words themselves as kind of the, the object of experience. Um, so some, some writers tend to make their, their words a kind of lens through which we see whatever, whatever picture they're painting for us. Others give us the words themselves as kind of the space where we want to, where we want to engage. Um, and then the third week, we're going to really dig into the way that metaphors can guide the creative impulse. Um, so in my writing, the power, whatever there is, um, tends to come from whatever's the initial sort of leap that my mind makes from one idea to another. There's a poet, Ocean Vuong, um, who has a collection, uh, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. And so you can tell a lot immediately about the power of that collection from the fact that the night sky is compared to, that these, you know, the, the points of starlight in the sky uh, are compared to bullet wounds. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of leap from one thing to another that we call metaphor is the space where I think poetry really tends to unfold. Um, over the course of those three weeks, of course, I'm going to try to talk as little as possible and then give uh, all the folks there just the opportunity to write uh, and then to come together and to uh, share some poetry if they wish um, and work on ways to continue the poetic practice outside of the workshop space. Because this workshop is open to all ages and levels of experience, how do you envision this go going? Is it a is it a collaborative? Is it a give and take? Uh, what do you see? One of the things that I find very important with poetry is not to be ever overly prescriptive. We praise everything that is good. We don't call anything bad. Um, but if something prompts questions in us as readers, uh, to voice those questions. And I think that creates a space where sort of all ages can come together. Um, oftentimes, children right, have an incredible way of being poetic. Um, children just say these remarkably poetic things. Um, so I have, I have three children, three young children, soon to be four. Uh, like my son yesterday morning just said, I'm going to plant some sunshine in my room. <laughs> a beautiful thing to say. Uh, there's so much poetry mm -hmm. uh, wrapped up in that. Um, and, and so I, I really hope, my, my sense is that probably most of the people there will be adults. Um, but all of us, I think, in approaching poetry, have the opportunity to become like children again and to go back to those kind of those kind of listening impulses that children have so well mm -hmm. and to kind of just rejoice in that. Danny Fitzpatrick, author, poet, translator, and member of the Noma Creative Assembly cohort, hosting a weekly poetry workshop beginning January 10th. Anyone interested can register online at noma.org. Danny, thanks for being here. Thank you, Bob. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, Stephanie Grace, editorial director and columnist for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, president and CEO of GNO, Inc., Michael Hecht, and author, poet, translator, and member of NOMA's Creative Assembly cohort, Danny Fitzpatrick. 
Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer, Aubrey Procell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.